Um, uh, really glad that you're able to join us here today at, uh, in our series of public meetings where we're looking at uh, what's at the heart of Christianity. And today what I'd like to try and do is spend about 30 to 35 minutes talking about some of the evidence, particularly for the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, in the midst of all of the things that are going on this week, uh, looking forward to getting all of your assignments finished by tomorrow night before they're due in, having a nice long weekend, a mid-semester break, I'm really glad that you've been able to join us uh, for this particular time at public meetings. If you're watching the clock, I will finish before 5.2, okay? I guarantee I will sit down before 5.2. We will move reasonably quickly, and the reason why is because I think there's actually lots and lots of evidence that point to the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. So I'm going to try and talk us through that today. So let me just start by saying that I cannot prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. Genuinely, I cannot prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. But I do want to present some historical evidence that requires an explanation. Christians cannot prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I'll explain why I think that in a minute. But what they do believe is that the evidence, the historical evidence that's presented about the person, the death and the resurrection of Jesus indicates that the best explanation we have for this historical evidence is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Notice there's potentially two different types of language being used here, the language of proof and the language of consideration. The central claim that Christians have made is that Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead. Today, I want to try and present some evidence and I'd like you to try and consider this evidence. Some of you may be very sceptical about believing that a dead person can come back to life. In which case, what I want you to do is to consider the evidence. What I do not want you to do is to suspend anything. I don't want you to leave your sort of scientific brain at the door. What I want you to do is I want you to consider the evidence. I want to ask yourself the question... Might the evidence be plausible? And if it's plausible, what is the best explanation for it? Anthony Flew, the famous atheist, who uh, some would say one of the sort of founders of modern day atheism, uh, died uh, several years ago. Uh, When you read one of his biographies, uh, he said, I've sought with all of my life to follow the evidence where it leads me. So if you're an atheist or a skeptic, My challenge to you today is, will you do likewise? Will you follow the evidence? Give it due consideration. Push back on it. Critique it. Question it. Explore it. Try and expose it. But will you at least follow the evidence and see where it takes you? Now, there may be some in the room who would call themselves Christians, who say, I'm not really sure there's much evidence. Jesus just rose from the dead. I just take it on faith. In which case, I want to challenge that and say, I think there's lots of evidence that will strengthen and support your faith. Before we jump in, let me also suggest that for all of us, we should not not just accept the evidence on blind faith, just because that's what I've always believed. Nor should we just accept it because someone up the front, perhaps like me, just tells you what they think is true. Christian or non-Christian, skeptic or believer, can I encourage you to check out the evidence for yourself? 
two particularly helpful books that you might find. I don't know if we've got these, uh, we can get copies of these. Can we trust what the Gospels say about Jesus? Now, lest you um, are weighed down with your extensive reading list this time of the year, you'll notice that this book is actually really, really very short. You can probably read this going home on the train. Uh, the second one, which for those of you who would like to explore a little bit, okay, this one's a bit thicker, okay? The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Half of this is an appendix. And those of you who don't really like reading appendices should be excited by this because they try and justify their claims with a whole lot of sources. So two books. So to start with, let's jump in. How is it that we actually know things? I want to suggest to you there's four different ways in which we acquire knowledge. The first is through the scientific method. In this case, the scientific method has some constraints. Now, those of you who are studying science at university or vaguely remember doing some form of science at school should be reminded about this or should know this. But don't hear this as a weakness. The fact that the scientific method has some constraints is in fact one of its great strengths. It functions broadly under two main premises. Firstly, that something is observable and we recognise there's some consistency to the way in which things act. And secondly, that the thing that we're observing is actually repeatable. However, remember, scientific knowledge is not the only way in which we acquire knowledge. Although these days the notion of scientism that you can only know things through science, has been significantly proposed for our world. I want to push back and say, I think we actually acquire knowledge through other means other than just the scientific method. Secondly, knowledge, rational knowledge. Well, this particular type of knowledge is that knowledge derives from some form of system where the rules themselves provide consistency and dictate certain outcomes. So if I, for example, okay, let's go back to year nine maths. Sorry to do this for those of you who gave up maths for the HSC. If I draw two parallel lines and I bisect them with a tangent and I can prove to you that co-interior angles are equal. Do you vaguely remember something of that? Yeah, some of you are nodding and the art students are sitting there going, well, I just lost you for a minute. <laughs> now, why is that the case? Says Who? You can't test that scientifically. You can't sort of sit down and examine 100 HSC students and go, oh, they all got the same answer. Like we're observing it and repeating it, therefore it must be... No, no, no. See, rational knowledge operates under a different system of acquiring knowledge. In fact, it's the only form of knowledge, purely speaking, in which you can actually prove anything. Again, rational knowledge has some constraints. You have to operate within certain rules, but again, that's also one of its strengths. Constrained, but powerful. Third form of knowledge is historical knowledge, and this is knowledge that's derived from events that have taken place in the past. To do so, we don't use the scientific method, we don't use rational knowledge, we use the historical method. Now, some of you may have been studying history at university or you've studied it at school, in which case you'd be aware of some of the aspects of the historical method. You would consider the validity of the sources that you're inquiring of. You would consider their reliability. You would question whether or not they are independent. You would wonder whether or not there's multiple attestation to the one event from different sources. Let's say, for example, you came up to me afterwards and you decided to have a conversation with me and you told me about uh, your 21st, because you just had a great 21st last weekend. Congratulations on turning 21. You tried to demonstrate to me that it was the best party ever. And at this point, I'm somewhat sceptical, because I've been to some great parties in my time, Uh, Well, perhaps not many recently, but when I was your age, I would say I went to some great parties. But I'm a bit sceptical. So I ask you to provide me some evidence. See, we can't go back and rerun the party. There's no sort of form of rational rules that would spit out whether or not it was the greatest party ever. So you say, well, I've got some video footage. 
You provide me some historical evidence. This was shot on the night. Look at all the people. Look, they're all having fun. I'm saying, you know, these videos, they can be doctored. That looks like you've sort of fudged the smiles on all those people's faces. <laughs> that looks like an emoji smiling face over. What? You say, look, I'll bring one of my friends over. They were there. Do you notice what you have to do? You actually have to not apply scientific knowledge, not apply historical knowledge. Genuine way in which we acquire knowledge about things that have taken place in the past. Fourthly, the other form in which we acquire knowledge is through revelation. Uh, This is the sort of knowledge that I'm thinking about that is often worth knowing, but is often given to us or acquired by us when someone reveals it to you. So, for example, I have a middle name. You, You cannot put me in a sort of a test tube or under a microscope to repeatedly do something that reveals to you my middle name. There's no rule that just you run over me and my name sort of magically appears on me or on my forehead. What's required is I need to reveal it to you or because I know there are some people in the room who know my middle name, because I've used this illustration before, you might have to go and find them. But you would only find it once it's been revealed to you. See, when we come to the claim of the resurrection, we cannot prove that Jesus rose from the dead. The only knowledge, arguably and theoretically, talk to me about it afterwards, that proves anything is rational knowledge. What I want to try and do today is show the reliability of the historical evidence that we have and the best explanation for it. So to do that, I want to work through five broad considerations. These are five broad areas of historical evidence that Christians have been defending for thousands of years that propose that the physical bodily resurrection of the man Jesus from the dead has the strongest explanatory power from the evidence that we have at hand. The five are listed there on the screen. Death by crucifixion, the burial of Jesus after his death, the historical claim to the empty tomb, the post-resurrection experiences, and the behavior of the disciples and a persecutor of Jesus. Lest you get concerned that the clock gets to 25-2, we're only on point two. That's okay, we will finish by 10-2. So firstly, let's explore death by crucifixion. So firstly, what is the likelihood that Jesus even existed historically? See, if Jesus didn't even exist, then the claim that he died and rose again is just, it's false. He couldn't have died if he never existed. Well, let's firstly consider what you might call some external historical sources. These come from two historians, Greco-Roman historians. One is a gentleman named Pliny the Younger, who lived there and wrote in this time about 112 AD. And this is what he says in one of his letters. They were, this group of people, in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. And you go, okay, so I've got this little fragment sometime in the past that mentions Christ and mentions God. Tacitus, another historian writing about the same time, writes this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Both of these Greco-Roman sources mention some sort of figure called Christ or Christus, But in reality, they don't really tell us much, do they? What about a source slightly closer to the time of Jesus? Notice these two sources are writing, arguably about 80 years after historians think the man Jesus lived. Uh, This particular writer, a man named Josephus, who's writing, actually that should be 94 AD, not 115 AD. Uh, Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He lived between 37 AD and 100 AD. He ended up becoming a Roman citizen, was employed as a historian for various emperors, Vespasian, Titus and Domitian. He mentions Jesus and in one of the other, his other pieces of writings mentioned Jesus' brother James. Josephus, despite being a Jew, was not favorably disposed towards the Jews. 
Which means you would think that he might therefore not write too favorably about the man Jesus, whom it was claimed was the king of the Jews. Josephus writes with bias. That's okay, actually. See, some historians also doubt the contents of the quote that's given here in Antiquities 18. Some argue that in recent years, after this quote was put forward, Christians embellished or added to the quote. But what I've done is I've stripped out those possible alterations. So if you go online, you can actually read the full quote by, you know, sort of square brackets. There's three of them in the quote. Some would say that's been embellished by the Christians to say more about the person of Jesus. Let's assume they are embellishments, although one of them may have been the original. It's a bit doubtful. This at least tells us more about the man, Jesus. He's a wise man. He's a doer of surprising deeds. He's a teacher. He draws people to him, both Jews and the Gentiles, in this case, the non-ethnic Jews. Notice the other connection at Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, that would be the Jews, Josephus is writing as a Jew, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, and the tribe of Christians, so named, are not extinct to this particular day. So even when we strip back what some of the historians would argue is an embellishment, it still sheds light on the historical figure of Jesus. Oh, by the way, I've not even opened the Bible yet. All I'm dealing with is those historical sources that are agreed to without even turning to the pages of the Christian scripture. So we know when we compile what we know from these listed Greco-Roman sources, the Jewish sources and other external sources, if you're taking notes, there's a quote by Thallus in Julius Africanus, a letter to Marabas Serapion, a quote from Lucian of Samosa. All of those quotes lead us to indicate that there is a historical figure called Jesus and this is what we know of him. We've not yet got to the Bible. A man named Jesus lived in Palestine somewhere around 26 to 36 AD. He has a family. His mother is mentioned named Mary and he has a brother called James. He's a noted teacher and I'll put miracles in inverted commas. Some would say wonder worker. Some thought him to be a king. Jewish and Roman leaders were involved in his death. Unexplainable and strange things happen at his death not just during his life, he was executed on a cross under Pontius Pilate and the Christians continue to worship him after his death. This is the historical evidence that's accepted by the majority of historians. Christians, non-Christians, skeptics, pagans, atheists, whatever you want. This is all in the public domain. You can go and do this work yourself. Don't just take it on face value because the guy up the front says it to be true. Go and do the research. This is what we get even before opening the pages of the Bible. Did Jesus exist? I want to suggest, yes, he did. See, before we turn to the pages of the Bible, it is very reasonable, highly likely. In fact, you could say certain that Jesus existed and died, was killed on a cross under Pontius Pilate. So if he lived and was killed, the second question we need to ask is, was he actually buried? See, for if the body was just disposed of, for example, taken off the cross and thrown away, then, of course, if you went to a tomb that you thought was the place where Jesus had been laid, it would have been empty. That seems eminently logical. So first, we do need to establish whether or not the body, when it was taken off the cross, was actually placed in the tomb that it was claimed to be the tomb of Christ. Now, in this case, we turn to what you might call internal sources, the pages of the Bible. And at this point, some of you who are sceptical will say, well, hang on, I'll just stop you there. The other Greco-Roman stuff I'm happy to accept, but as soon as you get to the Bible, I don't believe it. 
So let's say something here about the New Testament Gospels. The New Testament Gospels are four independent historical sources. Often when they're given to us, and if you sort of pull out a Bible or you've got one on the shelf, you'll see that you think it's one book. The Bible is actually a collection of 66 different books and letters. When it comes to the New Testament, the four Gospels are independent historical sources. Now, some would say, well, Matthew and Luke, those Gospels may have been derived from a common source, historical source. Very happy to grant that. Even if there's only three, there's still three independent sources. Both Christian and non-Christian historians and academics, when considering the Gospels as historical documents, find them to be reliable, historically accurate and valid. Sure, there will be some difference in the content between the Gospels, but they do talk very consistently about similar events. So what evidence do we have that the body of Jesus was actually placed in the tomb? A couple of things to say here. Firstly, all of the Gospel accounts provide a consistent account for the burial of Jesus. And at this point you might say, but hang on, they all got together and colluded and made up the same story. Well, that would be the case if they were not acting independently. So you come back to the illustration of your great party. If you lined up three friends and you got them all together, knowing I was going to ask you and you said, here's the script I've written for you, say this when Patty says, did you have a great party? Whereas if they independently come and give me their opinion of your party, they will tell me different aspects about it. Question is, are the gospel sources independent and are they reliable? The four gospels provide consistent account for the burial of Jesus. Secondly, in the gospel accounts, Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Jewish ruling council, particularly here in Luke's account. He requests that the body be taken down and that he would take responsibility for burying it. Now, the Jewish ruling council was strongly opposed to Jesus. So this account is unlikely to be a later invention of the Christians. It would be very embarrassing if after the fact they had have put this in. That clearly would have been contrary to what was actually taking place. Thirdly, notice we have no other competing burial story. It's not as if we now, this side of history, have to work out which burial account is the one that is most likely. There's no contention as to the tomb in which Jesus was placed. Fourthly, notice Jesus' followers actually follow the body from the crucifixion scene to the burial place. There's no particular word of mouth. By the way, I think they buried him down the road, around that tree. You know, you go down the back of all of the tombs and it's the one on the right. Imagine trying to follow those directions in the dark on a Sunday morning. More than likely you'd get lost. In this particular case, as we'll come to in a minute, it's the women particularly who follow the body to see where it's buried, ensuring that they would know the right place when they go there on the Sunday to continue to prepare the body for burial. So what have we looked at so far? We've looked at the life of Jesus and that he dies. We've looked at the historical accounts for the burial of Jesus. So what then about the historical claim to the empty tomb? The following Sunday, the gospel accounts recount, the gospel sources recount for us that the tomb was empty. So what evidence do we have for this? And what's the likelihood that the evidence demonstrates that the tomb was empty? Firstly, when you read the earliest accounts, they have what you would might say a lack of embellishment. Uh, Mark's gospel, written for us at about 65 to 70 AD, recounts for us an empty tomb and the account is almost plain. Uh, to give you an illustration of this, I'm going to put up a copy from the gospel of Peter. I'll give you a minute to read this gospel account. It's not as trusted as a historical source by historians, 
and it is somewhat difficult to verify some of the content in it. As you read through it, it appears to be embellished from earlier accounts. So you notice what takes place in this particular account. About halfway down, the heads of the two who come out reach to the heavens. Got a visual picture of that now, sort of reaching all the way up to the heavens. But the head of him who was led by them overpassed the heavens, and they heard a voice from the heavens saying, you have preached to them to sleep, and a response was heard from the cross. The actual cross that comes out of the tomb speaks. You're going, uh, okay, right, that just sounds a bit weird. Now, what the historians think is that this particular account has been embellished. Not unlike, let's go back to the great 21st that you had. Now, you might have written an account of your 21st in your diary, if you're sort of a journal or a diary or something like that. You get to your 50th and you reflect back on the previous 29 years of your life. And you maybe go, gee, my life has not really been that impressive. And so what you do is you start to embellish your history a little bit to make yourself sound a little bit grander. So instead of there only being 50 people at your 21st, because who wants to admit that only 50 people came to their 21st, you make it 150. Do you see how over time various historical accounts have been embellished? So maybe the earliest gospel writers did this or the later Christians did this with the earliest accounts. Well, the historians would say sometimes the plainest, simplest account is often the one that shows the lack of embellishment. So you've read the account here of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Peter. Now read the account from Mark 16. Very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back because it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Notice the difference between the two accounts. This particular account almost just sounds plain. It almost sounds matter of fact. You could say almost factual. Historians would argue that sources that lack embellishment are often considered to be more reliable. In Mark's narrative, the empty tomb account lacks embellishment. So the first point to the empty tomb, the lack of embellishment of the early accounts. Secondly, that the tomb was discovered empty, firstly by women. Now, some Christians have used the argument using what's called the historical criterion of embarrassment. The argument runs something like this, that if there are things in your account that are embarrassing then they're more likely to be reliable. Because if you're trying to make yourself look better, you might sort of try and clean up the account. Or not include it. So some people would say the fact that the testimony of women is not valid, whereas others would say the testimony of women was valid, but just not used very frequently in historical times. Now, whether or not this is actually a sort of a case for the criterion of embarrassment, I think the account of the women discovering the empty tomb is actually still very important. Why is it that the account records that the women found the tomb. Well, I think the account has the hallmark of fulfilling the role that the women had intended. See, the intent of the women, having followed the body from the point of crucifixion to where the tomb was, was that they would then go back on the Sunday to put spices on the body, which means the historical account would seem unusual or strange if it had the male disciples turning up and finding the body first. 
Because you would read it and say, surely the women would be going back first. Why is it that the count records for us that it's the men? That the tomb is discovered by women is important and shows a high likelihood that the tomb was discovered empty. Thirdly, the appearance of the grave clothes. The accounts indicate that the body is lifted up as though through the piece of cloth in which the body was wrapped in. And again, the record that the body is no longer present is testified to by the eyewitnesses. It's as if the body is just no longer there. Fourthly, the Jewish allegation. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, the Jews allege that the disciples have have stolen the body. Now, if you propose that the body has been stolen, you are saying that the tomb is empty. The Jews never disputed that the tomb was empty. These were the ones who put Jesus to death. What they tried to maintain was that the disciples had stolen the body. Now, the reason that they give is that the disciples took the body. Now, Justin Martyr, an early historian who writes in 150 AD, says that this particular account, this Jewish allegation, was still being circulated by the Jews of the day as the reason for the empty tomb. There was no dispute among the Jews that the tomb itself was empty. Just that the disciples had moved the body. Lastly, the last account is within several weeks, there's an early public declaration by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2, where he says, oh, sorry, that's the Matthew 28 account. Uh, While they were going, behold, some guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These were the guards at the tomb. When they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they have a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they, the soldiers, took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is spread among the Jews to the day. Now, the other historical um, interesting note about this, which is not in my notes, so give me 30 seconds of discretion, is if you're a soldier on guard duty, if you abandoned your post, you would be killed. Notice what the soldiers are willing to say. Oh, we sort of fell asleep. And so the disciples came and took the body. If the commanding officer would have found about that, you would have been executed straight away. This is the claim the Jews made. No disputing that the tomb was actually empty, but rather that the disciples had taken the body. Peter makes a public claim some weeks later in Acts chapter 2 where he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Read a little bit later on, the last sentence, This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. What's Peter doing here? Peter is standing up in the middle of Jerusalem declaring that Jesus has been risen physically, bodily from the grave and saying, if you want to go and find our patriarch David, the great King David, go and look in his tomb, his bones are still there. You want to do the same thing for Jesus? Go to the tomb, his bones are not there. Even within these weeks, Peter is saying to all of the assembled crowd who would hear, go and see for yourself, the tomb is empty. These five pieces of evidence point to a high likelihood that the tomb was empty on that very first Easter Sunday. But as compelling as these are, I think they are overshadowed by the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and it's to these that we now turn. What is it that Jesus looked like in his post-resurrection appearance? Well, on a number of occasions to different groups of people, the man Jesus appears in physical, resurrected, bodily form. Now that he appeared to a number of different groups of people, at a number of different times, lessens the likelihood of a consistent hallucination. Either one mass hallucination to the one group or the same hallucination to different people. What then do we see in the sources as to how he appears? The accounts indicate he is in bodily form, like you and I are in bodily form. 
He's recognizable as the person of Jesus. Thirdly, he talks and relates to those whom he did prior to his death. He eats with them. He spends time with those who see him. And he appears to the following groups that I've listed on the screen there. And the source is given there in brackets. He appears to Peter, the 12. He appears in the region of Galilee. And three independent sources attest to this. He appears to women. He appears to up to 500 people. Now, it may have been one big group of 500 people, which is partly where the sort of the mass hallucination theory comes from. Or it may have been that over a time, he appeared to a whole group of people in total numbering 500. And he appears to the man Saul, who was renamed to become Paul. Notice again the sources for the evidence. Multiple independent sources. But at this point, we do well to ask the question, what is it that the disciples were expecting? Maybe they saw what they'd hoped for. Some of the disciples had spent three years traveling around with Jesus. They were his friends. He was their master. They were his followers. They'd hoped Jesus would come back from the dead, partly because Jesus had foretold that he would die and rise again. And so maybe if they were hoping so much about it, maybe they just saw him. Maybe that explains the post-resurrection experiences. However, consider the position the disciples were in. Their leader has just died. He has been arrested and put to death brutally. The disciples, we're told, are afraid. They are frightened. They're in fear of the Jewish leaders who might be coming after them next. And also their expectations of Jesus has remained unfulfilled in three particular ways. Firstly, if the disciples thought that he was to be the Jewish Messiah, then he was a dismal failure. See, the Jewish Messiah, so many thought, would come and be a great ruler, a great saviour, one who would actually, in this case, kick out the people who were ruling over the Jews of the day. The man Jesus does not do this. Secondly, if they thought he was to be a king, then his death on a cross means he was considered a criminal, not a king. Thirdly, the commonly held Jewish belief of the afterlife, that great day of resurrection, was actually that all would rise from the tombs. Not just one man. And yet the claim the disciples make is Jesus, the one man, has come back from the dead. They're not claiming that everyone who was dead had been risen on that one day. So when the disciples stand up and claim that the man Jesus is resurrected, they are actually going against all the commonly held beliefs and understandings of the Jewish Messiah. This is a very different, this is very different from the Jewish expectation of the time. And yet something has compelled them to stand up and make the claims that they made. The post-resurrection experiences. How do you explain them? Fifthly, and finally, the behavior of the disciples and a persecutor of Jesus. What else could explain the behavior of some of these early disciples? For many of the disciples who claimed to be eyewitnesses, they were willing to suffer and die horribly for the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is so completely inconsistent with a story of a group of scared fishermen hiding from the Jewish authorities and nicking the body and making up a story that he'd actually come back to life. How long would you last under torture and persecution? How long would all of them last before them said, oh, look, I'm sorry, it was a fake, we made it all up, please let me go. No, all the way to the point of death were they willing because something had changed them completely. They were prepared to suffer ridicule, hatred, becoming social and religious outcasts and ultimately being put to death. How else do you explain this behaviour? 
Consider also the historical accounts of the expansion of the followers of Jesus. This group of early eyewitnesses speak of the resurrected Jesus and start proclaiming it to others. As a result, many others become followers of Jesus and the number of followers grows rapidly and significantly. Some of the accounts indicate thousands at a time. What else could explain this other than the compelling evidence that many of the age could have actually investigated for themselves? They could have gone and sought out the empty tomb. They could have talked face to face to many of the eyewitnesses. So what then has the strongest explanatory power for these behaviours? Well, some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, of course, the friends of Jesus would be far more likely to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But what do we do with Paul? Arguably one of Jesus' worst enemies. See, consistent with his own personal witness and testimony, Paul recounts his conversion experience, having seen the risen Lord Jesus. And in many of his letters in the New Testament, which you can read, he describes what he was like previous to that and who he has become. See, prior to seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus, Paul describes himself as a violent man, a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. He went house to house and dragged them out and had them executed. He was keen to plot the demise of this early religious, arguably anti-Jewish sect. So much so he was willing to have them killed. And what does he become? He becomes radically changed. He teaches and persuades others that Jesus had risen from the dead. He's willing to go to extraordinary lengths to preach Jesus' resurrection, not just in his home country, but many countries around the Mediterranean. He's even prepared to suffer horribly as a result, going to jail, being beaten and suffering right to the point of death. You might be able to explain away Jesus' friends becoming some of his ardent followers. But how do you explain away the behaviour of Paul? Arguably one of Jesus' worst enemies. What else can explain this radical change in him? So what do we do with this? Well, given the evidence, what explanatory power, what explanation provides the strongest explanatory power for all of these five things? The burial of Jesus in a known location the empty tomb, the post-resurrection experiences, the radical change in behaviour and the expansion of the followers of Jesus and the patterns of behaviour by the disciples and Paul. For all of these five things, the strongest explanatory power is this. The man, Jesus, rose bodily from the dead. It's not a proof because I can't technically prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead in the strictest sense. Is it the most likely and best explanation? Yes, it is which means you can have strong confidence that it took place. And this, friends, is what sits at the core of the Christian faith, that the evidence points to a resurrected Jesus, which means then you do not have to abandon the evidence or consider that maybe there is not enough evidence such that I need to take a leap of faith such that I would believe. No, friends, trust, faith, dependence always has an object. In this case, the faith of the Christian is grounded in the historical reality that the person of Jesus has risen bodily from the dead. But to what end, you might ask? Maybe it just shows he's a pretty cool guy. Came back from the dead and that was it. A little bit later on, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching in one of his areas in the Athens, says this, Having looked, overlooked times of ignorance, God commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, he has provided a proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, the Apostle Paul indicates that the resurrection of Jesus confirms God's plan that people need to repent, which is why the evidence of the resurrection is at the heart of the Easter message. Evidence of the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's the means by which God says to all of humanity, turn back to me, live obediently before me. Why? Because we are in our natural state rebellious towards God. But at some point, God will call time on this world, on your life. And he will bring us to account for the way in which we've treated him and the way in which we've behaved towards each other. That's what Paul's indicating. The means by which he will do this is you will stand before the physically, bodily, resurrected person of the Lord Jesus. And to him, as Lord of all the world, you will need to give an account for how you have treated him and the people with whom you have lived with. (coughs) Paul says... The resurrection of Jesus is proof that he will be the one who judges the world. He will be the one to whom you need to respond. But it also shows us, friends, that his resurrection indicates that we no longer need to be at enmity or at rebellion with God. For his resurrection shows that God has raised him from the dead, indicating that our sins have now been paid for, that we can now be restored into relationship with God. And this is what's at the heart of Christianity. (coughs) 